This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikazi Oates, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Francesca Morgan. She is an associate professor of history at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago and author of Women and Patriotism in Jim Crow America. We'll be discussing her newest book, A Nation of Descendants, Politics and the Practice of Genealogy in U.S. History. Francesca Morgan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nicasio. It's so great to have you on. So I want to begin the um, conversation with you telling a bit about yourself. I want to know how did you become a historian, or if there was a particular course or class that you took that inspired you to be a historian? Well, um, frankly, I had a historian in the family who is both the academic kind of historian, the published kind of historian, and the community historian. That was my mother who died this past year. She of the book dedication. So I feel very close to these uh, stories from the past I'm going to mention. Um, I came of age in Eastern Massachusetts. I was uh, eight years old at the time of the bicentennial of 1976. And that really, the timing also really matters. The past seemed like it was all around. Uh, She took me as a young child to living history museums that we have in the area, like Old Sturbridge Village. She also took me with her to libraries. I have a memory from my young childhood of riding in an elevator that had no door in Widener Library at Harvard in the Stacks. And she gave me a coloring book uh, for when she was browsing. And uh, there was another time as, when I was a young child where she was leaving. I asked her where she was going and she had to explain to me what a registry of deeds was. Um, right. So uh, Bicentennial, Eastern Massachusetts, I sat on a parade float that year, age eight, in a homemade 18th century costume. Guess who had sewn it? My parents were on the same float wearing 18th century wigs. I saw my small town develop its first historical society, and my mother was a co-founder. But yet, I went on a school. History was not my favorite subject. I liked languages. I liked creative writing. But then things turned again. In my senior year of high school in an AP history class. That was my first, there came my first spark. We had to do a role play about the American Revolution with some of us, including me, having to speak from the perspective of loyalists sympathetic to the British Empire, to have to temporarily sympathize or empathize with the other side and to voice a perspective that at that age I had not considered open things up when you consider This was Boston, and we all come of age with the Freedom Trail. From there, from that moment of dynamism, it seemed that there was always something new under the sun uh, when it comes to thinking about history. I just could never get bored. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So it sounds like the town that you grew up in and even um, some of the, the courses that you um, have taken really did their best to have living history and really to bring um, these the history to the present and really reenact some of those um, those things that we have read in in history or or have taught so that's really fascinating and I love the I um, the connection that um, you actually joined the profession that your mother um, actually was that's fantastic right um, we've heard about the ch- the apple falling far from the tree yes the apple falling far from the family tree I can't still really explain why I was the apple that fell near the tree. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, right? It just so happens. Yes. <laughs> so I want to um, ask another question. You know, since I've been doing these interviews, I have um, made it a point to really open up the conversation publicly to talk about vulnerability. So I wanted to know... Um, can you tell me a time um, during your career where you had a moment of self-doubt, but then also think about the moment of confirmation or tremendous triumph that you had? All right. I'd be glad to. I'll tell you about an instance of self-doubt. It happened at the beginning of uh, when I was working on my dissertation that became my first book um, for a while. Uh, I thought I was writing a history of conservative women, right-wing women who opposed women's suffrage. This is the 1920s. And were really worried about the Russian revolution and the spread of communism. Now, eventually that story set of stories became more complicated. Yes, there remained conservatives in my work, but there also were some people who were, you know, quite pro- progressive and it, the complexity goes on from there. All right. But at the time that I thought I was mostly writing on women who were on the right, white women who are on the right, I felt like my focus was going against much of the field of women's history and not in a good way. Uh, I remind you in my audience that women's history had an umbilical relationship to organized feminism and still does. It exists as a scholarly field because of the women's movement playing uh, out on campus and off campus. So um, there was a norm more pronounced in the 1990s than now of studying the history of feminism. Uh, When you study the history of women, it is a little harder to explain progressive change than reaction. And maybe I have that perspective, you know, of coming of age in the 1980s and the conservative surge. But anyhow, um, this is the 1990s and working on my dissertation, I developed some decent explanations after a time decent justifications after a time of thinking about it, why historians of women and gender at that time in the 1990s needed studies of conservative women who were anti-feminist. But, you know, for a while I was stuck in the moment, Um, you know, because I I obviously felt indebted to uh, the um, feminist uh, part of uh, women's history of the past. Okay, well, if you're ready, I'll talk about this moment of triumph that I had. I have to explain that both my parents, my mom and dad, uh, this does not include my stepfather, but my mother and my dad, um, they, each of them was an AB, uh, remained with an ABD. Each of them did all the coursework and much of the research for their doctoral degrees and dissertations, but each of them never finished their PhD. 
Um, my dad was held back by depression. Um, he passed away about 20 years ago, and I found a letter from his doctoral advisor begging him to finish, uh, but uh, never did. And anyhow, the depression, that's relevant to what I'm about to say. When I finished my own uh, dissertation and PhD and did my defense, um, my friends and I went to a brand new Mexican restaurant at that time on the Upper West Side of Manhattan to celebrate. Uh, this was the kind of Mexican restaurant that has cactus on the plate, you know, sort of good, the, the real food from the central Mexico. This was pretty new to my part of New York at that time. So my point being, uh, at this dinner, um, a college friend of mine came who was at that time doing his medical residency in psychiatry. And he told me what a big deal he thought it was that I finished my dissertation because of all the patients he was working with who uh, were held back by writer's block and self-doubt for all these many years. And um, all these people who had not finished and my friend floated a statistic uh, that only half of people who start doctoral degrees and dissertations finish them. Um, this was the 1990s. I don't know if the percentage has gone up or, or not, but anyhow, that's what I heard at the time. So this is a real feeling of accomplishment. And it also wasn't, it also reminded me about how much help I had had, how much support I had had um, in so many ways. So whatever, that was, that was just a good feeling and a good time. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, writing the dissertation, you don't necessarily realize um the accomplishment in writing it because I think you think about it, um, you think about the overall picture, but then you're just trying to get through writing the chapter, right? And, um, you know, um, I'm a PhD student as well. And, you know, one of the things <laughs> about graduate school is that, okay, once when you reach ABD, um, and I know I talked about this to some of my friends, it's like, okay, great, I'm ABD. Now I have to write this dissertation. How do I write a dissertation? And so it's really um, um, gratifying to know that you persevered and, you know, with the confirmation of your friend um, who said, you know what, this is actually like monumental because as he noted the statistics that many people um, for whatever reason can't finish it. And you actually did um, even, even with a topic that was controversial, right? You know, women's history of the past. Um, so that's fantastic. That's, that's great. Truly. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I want to talk about, you know, the the switch from your dissertation of women's history um, of the past to to now, a nation of descendants. Um, before we dig deep into the book, I want to um, see if you can just give us like a brief overview of the book. What is a nation of descendants? How would you describe it? Right. Uh well, the book is all about the political history of genealogy, and I mean politics in the broadest way, uh, pertaining to power relations of all kinds, pertaining to group relations of all kinds that are larger uh, than family and larger than even a community under the same surname. So I'm talking about how um, group dynamics of all sorts, for want of a better word, social hierarchies play out through what seems to be very personal uh, genealogy practices. Um, 
I'm talking about sort of social sorting, if you will. So um, I do it both for um, white uh, Anglo-American um, racial hierarchies and pushback, you know, in later times, you know, it traces a real story of continuity there um, or persistence, I guess is a better word. I also talk about genealogy as a way to express support for civil rights, um, to push against all kinds of group prejudice. So that's a short summary of the book. And I remind my audience that I start in the late 19th century with some nods back to pre-Civil War times, and I go all the way up to the present. Uh, my last chapter is on the turning point after 1998, around the year 2000, when we start to have businesses that are selling uh, DNA tests to be done in the home and sent into a lab, right? So 1998 is a turning point in my work. Uh, I'm part of a um, genre within history that deals with recent history. So I very explicitly link uh, past and present. Yeah, and I read the book, and I was so impressed at the level of um, of depth and um, comprehensiveness that you um, give in this book. And as you mentioned, you focus um, on Anglo um, white Americans, um, also Mormons, um, Jewish um, people, as well as um, indigenous or Native Americans, and of course, African Americans, um, which will be the focus of our um, conversation for today. Um, but it was so, it was so um, great to read and it was um, really rich. And I'm so thankful that you decided to um, write this book and this book is here um, in the world. And I just want to um, just make sure that our listeners have a um, sort of grounding. So, um, how would you describe genealogy? I know you talked about it um, in the um, your previous response. You said it's um, like social sorting. Um, I wonder if you could expound a little bit on that so just people can have an idea of, you know, what we mean when we talk about genealogy. Of course, a genealogy itself, um, put it this way, I'm about to give a definition that is, I hope surprises you in a way because you wouldn't expect it to reinforce social relationships because what genealogy amounts to in large part is tracking family relationships through time, usually going before living memory, usually going before uh, when there are people still alive who recall the previous few generations. In a lot of cases, you're kind of um, constructing relatedness to people whose names are on the page who lived long ago. Now, that's a very basic definition, tracking family relationships through time. That's a very basic definition, but there's lots of variety uh, in the just even within uh, the ways people do genealogy, such as do you go forward in time uh, from the ancestor? Do you go backward in time uh, from the descendant? And um, I'm going to also uh, remind uh, you and our audience that the term genealogy also indicates a method in philosophy and cultural studies and theory that involves digging underneath the narratives of triumph to get at the grubby reality. I'm being quite crude here. Uh, Nietzsche was very explicit 
uh, about that. And uh, um, of course, Foucault was inspired by uh, Nietzsche's handling of the term genealogy. And you can uh, read all about that meaning of genealogy in the works of philosophers. Now, there are a few scholars in our own time, uh, mostly in cultural studies, who use both definitions of genealogy undertake the genealogy of genealogy, which I think is an admirable thing. So if you go into JSTOR, one of those databases, you'll find a lot of, for example, title words with that second meaning of genealogy that's more theoretical. But I'm in large part caught up with that first meaning that's very literal, tracking family relationships through time. That is so helpful. Um... You know, as you said, tracking family um, relations and relationships through time. And then I'm also struck by what you said in the in the beginning. I'm maybe paraphrasing here. We said um, social hierarchies. It kind of like hardens um, social hierarchies. And I kind of want to um, follow up on that point and think about how social hierarchies. Um, have been described um, or reinscribed rather um, in democracies. And there are two um, particular things that I think are related to um, genealogical practices. Um, the first one is um, the one drop rule. And once again, this is pertaining to um, African Americans, which I think that is um, a um, practice of white supremacy that is distinct in America um, and also is singular to African Americans. I want to know if you can talk to me um, about how does that one drop formula factors into um, genealogy or genealogical knowledge? Of course. Um, yes, uh, that's correct. This one drop rule is a feature of those southern state laws, that bundle of state laws that all, that bring us Jim Crow generally. You're correct. It's distinctively American. More about that in a moment. It is post-slavery. It's an expression of controlling the freedom, uh, obviously, of freed people. Um, and uh, the time period is the 1890s onward. Um, and there's a broader mentality behind the one drop rule. Now, I hope that you and our audience might be familiar with a recent book called Hitler's American Model uh, or Models by James Whitman. He's an attorney. And that book is all about uh, Nazi German uh, lawyers in the 1930s coming through the southern states and visiting with legislators and governors there. Um, it's all about the Nazis interest in the, those Jim Crow laws. Hitler uh, and his government found Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924 very inspirational. Uh, but the one-drop rule was too much for those Nazi attorneys. They couldn't see their way to enforcing the one-drop rule in a German context, even with all those other things they were doing to Jews and the Rome people, the people we used to call gypsies in the 1930s. So this is before the genocide. Okay, so the one drop rule in the USA means everything to this other part of Jim Crow, the, these newly strict legal bans on interracial marriage and punishment of interracial relationships involving white people and black people. Uh, legally speaking, in states that had the one drop rule, a person was white if they had not a smidgen, not even a rumor of black ancestry or not, yeah, black ancestry, uh, we're not even talking about fractions anymore, right? 
Um, legally speaking, in these southern states, only a white person could marry a white person. Um, uh, and uh, states keep dossiers of surnames belonging to uh, families that are supposedly not white, including you know mixed race families that are lumped in with, I'm sorry, there's a long history of that definition of black encompassing mixed race people. Okay, um, now these laws against interracial marriage uh, in the time of Jim Crow, they seem like they're gender neutral. However, yeah, you and our audience knows that one of white supremacy's big obsessions is policing white women at the same time as terrorizing uh, you know, African-Americans. And uh, the uh, big intent here is to prevent any black or mixed race, non-white son-in-law from making claims on the family estate. You know, it's just playing out in patrilineal uh, settings. So anyhow, couples where the woman is white face extra hostility. Now, um, a follow-up question that I think is relevant. What does this one drop rule mean for the practice of black genealogy? Uh, genealogists generally um, have even more difficulty documenting relationships and marriages and births than they otherwise would have because with the one drop rule and all this background to it, people in interracial relationships have all the more reason to hide them. But what I'm going to say pertains to um, marriages within uh, a race, let's say but marriages between people of the same race as well as interracial relationships. Both categories of relationships and not just the illegal kind that's interracial are lightly documented or undocumented when we're talking about African-Americans or Native Americans. You think about you know, arson attacks on black churches that are still happening recently and obviously were happening back then. Black churches uh, mean many things, but churches of all sorts are going to have wedding and baptismal records that are really important to genealogy. And uh, obviously there's the prospect of document destruction whenever there's a fire or some other attack. Um, now there's a whole lot to say about government statistics, uh, both in history and today, uh, missing all sorts of things, uh, African-Americans in all sorts of ways. I'll talk more about that later if you want me to. Um, but getting back to the particular issues for genealogists who study African-Americans or genealogists who are black uh, studying, uh, you know, things and the one drop rule. Um, there's an estrangement and a tearing apart of families uh, when mixed race people go, go on to live as white. Going away to live as white, we used to say paths for white, but the more accurate term is living as white. It's gonna remind you of witness protection because it means discarding all your old relationships, including your family ties and getting all new friends, right? All new relationships and moving to a new place typically. So good luck to the genealogist is working long afterwards trying to reconstruct uh, family relationships. Um, you know, when we have instances of a family member going away to live as white and doing away uh, with the family. Um, and I've seen this especially up in middle-class families when we're talking about professionals, but I think it happens, uh, you know, a lot otherwise. So yeah, that's the whole array of things I've noticed pertaining to the one drop rule. Wow, that is so um, uh, useful and the complexity of it all. I also want to, um, um, talk about another um, uh, white supremacist or racist practice um, 
in the U.S. that I think also relates to genealogy, and it is the the practice of eugenics. Um, can you talk to me about how genealogical records um, support um, uh, eugenics in a particular time? And, and you know, I think about this um, when you were talking about the um, concerted effort to police. Um, white women's bodies as well as um, African-American men, um, you know, throughout history. But if you could um, um, zero in on particularly talking about the relationship between eugenics and geological um, records. Of course. Um, Well, I remind you, pardon me, that uh, the eugenicists who sort of founded that field in Britain and the United States at the turn of the last century, they... um, kept uh, all sorts of dossiers of genealogical information. They kept geneal- they amassed genealogy records. There's a tremendous array of them at the Cold Springs in Long Island, which was one of the big eugenics uh, labs. Um, and also um, Francis Galton, the British scientist who coined eugenics and founded the field in the 1880s. He published, among his many publications, are a, sort of a how-to book for doing your own genealogy. So what's this about? All right, a big thing that that eugenicists did in the decades before we start to have the state laws and sterilization is to research disease and crime and addiction by tracking those things through multiple generations of families with the presumption that all three of those tendencies I just mentioned, disease, crime, addiction, you name it, are inherited. uh, eugenicists across the board thought that your family's past would forecast your family's future. Um, there's a remark by one of the American eugenicists, very famous uh, biologist, uh, who said, grapes cannot come from thorns, right? A grape is a grape, a thorn is a thorn. They're going to pass that on. Yeah. Okay. Now, what are some racist dimensions of what I'm speaking of? Uh, obviously, there's praise for white reproduction and suppression, attempts to suppress reproduction of others with the presumption that you're going to pass on whatever uh, white society judges as undesirable. So whatever social distress there might be in a family or a community in a poor neighborhood seems to eugenicists to prove inferior forebears and therefore inferior future generations. So we have a whole array of state laws starting with Indiana in 1907, but across the United States and more than 30 states where we have uh, state funded um, compulsory sterilization without consent for incarcerated populations, uh, both in jails and in lockups for people deemed mentally ill and that's a very elastic concept that encompasses all sorts of things. We could talk about that all day, just uh, how much the definition of mentally ill stretched. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyhow, all of this has a greater effect on African-Americans and immigrants and others who seem like they're racially different or racially inferior and poor at the same time. All three of those populations, especially African-Americans, are overrepresented in places of incarceration and, of course, uh, in states with uh legally mandated segregation there are particular there are segregated institutions that are specified for uh people of color so anyhow um even in very recent times african-americans experienced the brunt 
of sterilization laws, which only gradually go away. And even today, we have instances of um, steriliz uninvited sterilization within sort of private medical settings. There's all sorts of things to say about that. Now, what about praise for white reproduction? Um, the sterilization laws of the 19, you know, the early decades of the 20th century, they're all coalescing, coming together during the same decades when white people's large families are receiving prizes at county fairs or state fairs and are photographed with the children standing in stair-step formation so that you can see how many children there are. Um, you know, held up as something good. And uh, I remind you of those white baby monuments of the 1900s, teens, 20s. I remind you of those white pioneer pageants. Um, there's all kinds of things in the culture um, uh, that praise white reproduction. There are presidents wringing their hands over what's called race suicide. Um, white Anglo-Americans uh, not reproducing and the fertility rate dropping. Um, they should go back to what their grandparents were doing with the grandparents' large families. I could go on from there, but um, mm -hmm. I want you to mind that to, to, to I want to remind everyone that um, praise for white reproduction and sterilization uh, laws go hand in hand in a way, in many ways. Mm -hmm. I want to um, touch on a point that you said earlier um, about um, African-American um, genealogical practices um, that is and may be distinct from um, uh, white people using um, genealogy. So could you um, talk a little bit more about that? I think about this particularly when I've read um, uh, this particular line in your book on page 81, and it says, um, while Pauline Hopkins and W.E.B. Du Bois descended from African-Americans who had lived free, those descended from slaves often could not locate their ancestors in a range of textual sources, church records, land, and other government records, probate records, and military records, and census on which genealogists relied. So could you talk to me about how, um, given the history of African-Americans in the U.S., um, relying on those particular sources that, um, primary sources um, that genealogists use do not fit for African-Americans? And so, and if not, what African-Americans um, relied um, to trace and track their um, familial um, ties. Of course, I'll be delighted to do that. I just want to say that I've researched genealogy practices among a lot of different uh, Americans. I pay attention to library journals and advice books and genealogy journals. And some of my following points pertain to people generally with working class or poor ancestors, but African-American practices really seem distinctive because of all the exclusions, uh, like, like you just spoke of in records and also in present day or more recent genealogy practices. So um, African-Americans, especially those uh, descended from enslaved people have needed to rely on non-textual evidence, non-written evidence of relatedness, such as morphology, uh, phenotype, what does that mean? It means that one over there uh, has a notch in their ear like I do. That one over there has a jawline that I recognize my own family. So anyhow, um, similarity in looks, and truly there are African-American practitioners who, who mentioned this, 
Um, and uh, obviously oral interviews are extremely important um, long before we have a historical branch of history called oral history. Um, oral interviews matter across the board for all sorts of different genealogists, but they have this special function and poignancy uh, among Af in African-American practices. In much later times, DNA testing has a particular resonance among African-Americans. Um, you and I are living in a time where I think Ancestry.com is trying to become the Amazon equivalent of where you get your DNA test. On the other hand, last time I looked, there are still are some Black-owned businesses speaking directly to Black consumers. So there's all this particular resonance. So anyhow, I noticed this with African-Americans because of all the ways enslaved people and their family relationships often don't appear in historical records. Um, enslavers, um, owners, um, some of them keep comprehensive records of such things in the back of their family Bibles, especially if they're religious, but we can't just, we can't depend on that. Uh, owners do as they'll do, right? There's nothing compelling them to do so. Um, so enslaved uh, people do not appear by name in most of the federal censuses in the slavery era. There are some exceptions in the 1850 census, but for much of those you know, hundreds of years of slavery, we don't have that. Instead, the norm in federal censuses is to list enslaved people by age and by gender and not by name. And you can imagine what this means for genealogy research. Um, and another particular distinctive feature I want to point to for enslavement in particular um, is the sexual pressures that enslaved women experience. Any babies born to enslaved women add to the financial assets of their enslavers, right? So there are these particular financial rewards for sexual assault. And I know I sound harsh when I refer to sexual assault, but it's hard for me to imagine meaningful consent happening in a context of uh, enslavement. So uh, we have all the ways that enslavement incentivizes uh, these uh, sexual pressures combined with these longstanding bans going back to colonial times and interracial marriage combined with the lack of legal protection or even legal existence of marriages between enslaved people who obviously are getting married, but does the law, you know, consider these marriages to even exist, not when it comes to enslavement. Um, uh, combined, okay, um, this is a long sentence, but combined with all the families torn apart by the domestic slave trade, I've seen estimates for the 1800s that something like one in three families of enslaved people experienced that being torn apart. Um, I want to remind you of the earlier times of the overseas slave trade in the Middle Passage. Um, all these things mean gaps and silences and surviving records and frustration to say the least for our genealogists uh, working in retrospect on enslaved people. Now that sounds a little peculiar. Obviously all these are outrageous to human rights and what I just said, but it plays out in a particular way for genealogy practices long after the fact. And so, uh, after uh, slavery is outlawed, there are all the ways that segregation and other forms of discrimination play out in library systems and archives and even genealogy publications. I'm thinking about the indexes of surnames, um, common Anglo-English surnames that tend to leave out surnames that belong to people of color. Um, I, I talk about, again, segregated inferior libraries and 
uh, black neighborhoods and all these ways that the big historical society or the big research library downtown is not hospitable. Um, these are places that genealogists across the board depend on, but there is such a thing as doing genealogy while black. I found some correspondence, uh, a letter that might never have been sent from the 1990s where one black genealogist says to another, well, this is what you say if you go into a courthouse in the South and someone kind of challenges you, you point to your right of access to the courthouse, right? It's hard for me to imagine a white person having to do that you know what I mean? Mm, so mm -hmm, there is mm -hmm. such a thing as doing genealogy while black on top of everything else I just mentioned for the history of, of enslavement um, and free uh, all the ways, uh, all the things that endured, uh, that free blacks also endured. Yeah. And as you said, um, I, I love the, the, the phrase that you said, doing genealogy while black, you know, um, there are particular um distinctiveness of that. But then also with African-Americans, there's a relationship between the social and the practical, right? And um, when we think of the 20th century, the mid-20th century, um, you know, African-Americans are in the struggle to um, um, dismantle Jim Crow and segregation. Um, and then notably, we have the civil rights movement and um, the Black Power movement. And in your um, in your book, you write that civil rights reforms, um, Black nationalism, and calls for Black power all expanded African-American genealogy practices. Can you tell us how so? Oh, absolutely. Um, base, this answer is going to overlap with some of my other answers, probably, but I'm going to briefly summarize changes here, and I'll be glad to elaborate on the following points. Genealogy practices generally express the needs of the people who are doing it in, in the present. Um, so people in the present have needs that they remedy in their scrutiny of the past. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, that's really relevant to all those since those long time period of the civil rights movement, the freedom movement, expanding black genealogy of the uh, as a field just like happened with black history as a field. Um, yeah, that, I, I, I can start with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. I can start with Carter Woodson, the black historian who um, basically developed a public history before the field of public history is thought to emerge. You um, push against white supremacy by pushing against that bleached version of American history that's being put out and you put black history there. Um, you push against what white supremacists are really saying in the early, the particular senator in the early 20th century saying that, that they don't have, black people don't have a regard for history. They don't have a regard for family history. Forget about it. They don't put up monuments, right? So a really, um, put it this way, a really clear way to combat white supremacy for Du Bois's uh, generation. I know he changed a lot, but you know we're talking about the sort of 1920s, 1930s civil rights playing out in the North. But within the, all that context, we have um, people like Du Bois and Woodson and all the librarians they worked with. Um, repopulating the past with all these histories of um, Black individuals, Black families, um, Black historical change over time. 
um, that had been suppressed or denied. You push against the whiteness of the hereditary group. Doesn't point in 1930 uh, when Du Bois and some of the other um, famous uh, black reformers in Boston develop a, a hereditary organization called Society of Descendants of New England Negroes. Pardon my language, but that's the term they use, capital N Negro. Uh, the year is 1930, and this is directly in reply to all those white daughters of the American Revolution and white colonial dames and, and whatnot. So there's even more to say. And as we move forward, there's a real history of um, civil rights, uh, and I'll talk more about this later, playing out in not just the behaviors of library patrons and the increasing diversity of people who do genealogy, but all the ways they're using um, records, you know, history, historical records, all the new offerings and publications that are there. Um, after Roots, we start to have really widely accessible how-to books on Black genealogy. We didn't have such a thing widely circulated before the 1970s. So um, there's a lot more to say, but I, I can pull up all sorts of examples of how civil rights activists themselves um, felt sort of inspired to do genealogy practice or to tap into genealogy. And of course, Roots, uh, we'll talk more about that later, Alex Haley's book and TV show of the 1970s, Roots expresses so much um, about in, in the history that I just said. And actually, I'm going to leave it there because um, there are all sorts of uh, um, matters that are that are relevant. Yeah, let's go there. So, you know, in your um, the subtitle of your book, Politics and the Practice of Genealogy in U.S. History, um, I would add another word to the uh, subtitle, which is popularity. And as you mentioned, that there's one book in particular that is in large part responsible for that. Uh, tell me about that book. Okay. Um Indeed. So uh, Roots, uh, yeah, sorry, let, let me just back up and reconfirm that our audience knows. Um, okay. Uh, basically, Alex Haley was already famous from his 1965 book, The Autobiography of uh, Malcolm X, uh, at the time that he's working on his own family history. And so, um, and he gave lots of um, uh, public lectures and published lots of articles on the project that became Roots before the book came out in 1976. Okay, so what's in Roots? If you're not familiar with it, uh, it's the seven generations of Alex Haley's ancestors on his mother's side, going all the way back through a long time period within slavery, back to the 18th century, back to uh, an ancestor who had started in Africa and was kidnapped into the slave trade. That would be Kunta Kinte, um, who even surfaces in hip hop lyrics today. Um, so that, that's, uh, uh, pardon me, the, the basic plot of uh, Roots as a story. So um, I have three chapters on Roots and uh, basically uh, the short version of what I want to say is that roots signifies changes that are already happening in the ways that people do history and genealogy. And Alex Haley himself is an example of it as he goes to research the project um, 
I remind you that the book came out in 1976 and the show uh, went on network TV in January 1977. So nine years, nine years before that, um, Alexander Haley himself goes into uh, the Maryland Hall of Records. It's a state archive to research um, the, the man that we'll later know as Kunta Kinte because um, the slave ship carrying Kunta Kinte had landed in Maryland, Annapolis, Maryland. So there's a reason why he's in Maryland and the archivist who waits on him and uh, brings him things and talks about the sources is uh, herself African-American. And she wrote articles after the fact about Roots transforming her own practice, workplace practices as, as an archivist. This is Phoebe Jacobson. Um, but that's just a small example of um, these broader changes that are happening, these archives and uh, historical societies making uh, more of a point to amass source materials that are um, going to help along. So black genealogists um, like uh, Alex Haley. So uh, when Roots comes out, it accelerates this diversification in source material and in the people who do genealogy that's already happening. And Roots directly inspires institutions to develop within African-American genealogy that we have not seen before. A similar thing happens within the field of American Jewish genealogy with uh, the men who started the first Jewish genealogy society in the United States directly citing Roots in their founding statement. And this is less than a year after the TV show. Um, but then you know, back to Af at what's happening in the field of African-American studies at that time. 1977 is the year of, you know, like I say, Roots uh, showing on TV, that final episode, final week of January, 1977. And within four months, we have the um, inaugural meeting of what's gonna become the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. That's a mouthful, but it's the first um, gene genealogy society uh, uh, for African descended people, the African diaspora that we have, uh, uh, that I know of in a diasporic country. And so it's these particular archivists and historians in Washington, D.C. that launched this group after many years working with white genealogists and um and uh, we have chapters all over the country. I did some terrific research in the archives of the Chicago chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. And why is this relevant to Roots? I really think Roots inspired that final push that it takes to found an institution and to keep it going, right? It's in the year 1980, three years after Roots, that the um, members of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society begin their journal of, you know, black, of all sorts of advice and source material and things for the black genealogists. Um, it's uh, within a year of roots that the Daughters of the American Revolution admits their first uh, African-American member. It's, in, it's within a year after roots that we have a, a trade publisher, a commercial press publishing uh, the first of many advice books, instruction books for African-American uh, genealogists. This would be, um, I'm blanking the guy's first name, that's really bad, but Bloxon's book called Black Genealogy from the year 1977. So, and these institutions keep going through the decades, right? They don't go away. Um, so do these, um, some, some cities have sort of, uh, 
freestanding and pre-existing about in a lot of cases it's from after roots as, as there are these particular organizations of black genealogists that um, are not part of the afro-american historical and genealogical society they're they're sort of separate but everybody's working together so black genealogists put their heads together uh, for what really is a very difficult field right they're putting their heads together they're creating community in a new way um, in the months after roots and it doesn't stop right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah so we just have this infrastructure for the black genealogist that wasn't there before so is it fair to say that um um, genealogy as a profession, or at least for African Americans, um, actually emerge after um, after roots and and Alex Haley's roots, or um, it you know was beginning in the early twentieth uh, century and it just um, magnified or amplified after after roots. How how should we think about the rise of the profession? The second part of your statement is the one. Um, okay. Pardon me, that, that I would agree with for sure. Roots has uh, precedent that I talk all about. Polly, Polly Murray, um, in the last few years, there's been all kinds of uh, really wonderful biographies of Polly Murray getting published, and there's a new HBO documentary on her. Uh, civil rights activist is also very important in the early women's movement, and uh, also in the way she lived her life really important figure in lgbtq history as well there is a lot to say about her and i say it in the book and so in 1956 she published a memoir that was also a family history called proud shoes and it's a pivotal text for both african-american history and genealogy and why is it a precedent for roots um basically she grew up with her aunts uh, who adopted her. There are three sisters on her mother's side, and one of them legally adopts Polly Murray and basically becomes her mother. Um, and through her aunts and Polly Murray herself writing down, um, keeping records of all these things, they're learning about their, their family history. Um, Polly Murray ends up writing the book and for her aunts. Okay, so um, for both her maternal grandparents, and the last name is Fitzgerald, Polly Murray lays out multiracial family trees going back into the time of slavery, of enslavement. Um, but I must say there's uh, all kinds of histories of free blacks, including mixed race populations that she finds on her grandfather Fitzgerald's side going back into the 1700s. So it's about enslaved people, it's also about free blacks. She's not the first to write about the white ancestry that some African-Americans have. She's not the first to write about slavery's rewards for the sexual assaults on enslaved women. I already mentioned that, but that's an explicit theme of both her book and Roots later on. However, it's, here it's the 1950s and Polly Murray's stories of her uh, grandmother, Cornelia, her enslaved great-grandmother, an uh, enslaved woman named Harriet, and her white great-grandfather spread the knowledge of those matters I just mentioned more widely. Another thing we get from Proud Shoes is many layers within the black middle class. Yeah, she has stories of the rich Fitzgeralds and the poor Fitzgeralds to her white readership anyway. The black bourgeoisie was not a phenomenon that was widely known before. There are these layers in the black community that really are clear in her book. 
Um, I must say, um, and I'm saying this uh, in passing, among her aunts, uh, she had a, a one aunt whose husband left her permanently when he went off to live as white, right? So what I was saying about the pressures to go on and live on as white for professionals, I had in mind this painful story uh, from Polly Murray. So um, generally, she's very engaged. She was very engaged to the history of mixed race people. Um, she wanted to move beyond the American habit of calling, of referring to light-skinned blacks, you know, um, she's talking about mixy America at one point. So anyhow, um, she published all these family stories as proud shoes 20 years before Roots. It's not like the book was not known uh, or not circulated. She was able to publish proud shoes with a commercial press, you know, a trade press. Proud shoes gets reviewed in a whole array of white newspapers as well as black ones, you know, it gets reviewed in the New York Times, it gets reviewed in the Chicago Tribune. So in its time, Proud Shoes was a widely known book. Um, it went out of print in the 1970s. And so um, I talk at greater length about just why Proud Shoes was forgotten for decades and went out of print and then was rediscovered. Now, when I say she laid out family trees, uh, she wrote family history, she preferred narratives. She didn't publish lineages on the page the way some genealogists do. Um, she was really ambivalent about publicly identifying herself as a genealogist because she did so many more things. But, and I'm not talking about only a small part of the many lives that she lived. I must say though, Proud Shoes, nonetheless, a landmark work for the field of African-American genealogy because Polly Murray shows many of the particular difficulties of African-American family research 20 years before conventional wisdom tells us that black genealogy as a field emerges. Uh, her work was so early and so pioneering that for a long time, she wasn't recognized as the sort of, I don't wanna say founding figure, you know, we, we can take the history of black genealogy back a lot further, you know, back to Du Bois at least, but I must say, um, took a while took a long time for her to get recognized as a really crucial early figure. And this is true elsewhere in her career. So early, so pioneering, she doesn't get listened to. So anyhow, with Polly Murray, we're looking at roots before roots. Um, and um, uh, th there's some, uh, there's a lot of other published work. And like I say, uh, there are things that black genealogists do in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s that lay the ground for this big success that comes with uh, Ruth. Right, and you know, one of the, the other things that um, I found very interesting um, to go back to the point about um, the the popularity of Roots, but then to also think about the, um, the distinctions of African-American genealogical practices is, um, the notion, and you talked about it before, um, of oral histories and how um, oral histories does not really get accepted until, um, you know, forgive me if I have my, my, my dates wrong or the decade in the, the 70s or the 80s. Yes. Um, yeah, the oral history journals really start in the early 70s. You have to have sort of uh, the Academy of Race Social History before oral history gets its standing among uh, academics. Uh, so you're right, but there are all these ways people use oral history long before we have the institution dedicated to it. Right, and African-Americans, you know, um, rely um, on oral culture and um, 
And that is one of um, the methods in which African-Americans um, um, were able to track their particular um, lineage. And so I just found that point to be really fascinating and interesting um, that, um, you know, one of the ways that African-American genealogists are trying to intervene here um, um, is also by um, um emphasizing the importance of this particular um, source that isn't just about textual evidence. And I want to think about um, moving um, at the close of the 20th century and going into the 21st century, as what you have mentioned here, and the um, the importance of technology here as it relates to genealogical knowledge and, and um, practice. Um, and here, I really want to think about the, the language of technology um, as it relates to genealogy, right? So I think about the, the word certainty, right, moving toward the language around accuracy or probability as it relates to source material. Um, specifically here, I'm thinking about historical records, many of which that we talked about, you know, the census records, um, church records and whatnot, and then moving towards um, DNA technology and science. Talk to me about um the the transition of um, historical sources and moving to DNA um, practices. Of course. Now, what we're looking at is um, DNA practices getting layered on top of, if, if you will, for many people, they get layered on top of the more traditional written kinds of sources you use. There are many uh, genealogists that use both, but point uh, the point remains. Okay, um, I'm going to quick summarize the historical textual written records that genealogists across the board tend to use or try to use, right? Um, you look at censuses, you look at wills, you look at probate records in general, or like uh, court records are excellent ways to find uh, the names of the people you're looking for. Military records are big. Um, church records are all important because it takes a long time in colonial history and early republic history for cities and states to begin keeping vital statistics, right? So church records are really big. Um, any other records that list names? Um, so basically, um, where I talk about accuracy, uh, once you are able to reconfirm the same information in multiple written sources, the information becomes something you can believe. Um, and from historical records, uh, that is, if our search is successful, and that's an open question for a lot of people, we get information or we don't get information in a particular form, right? If you're a genealogist, you're looking for names, you're looking for relationships, you're looking for dates, you might have a lot of people in history with the same name, and you have to figure out which of the five John Wheelwrights you're talking about, you know, the 1800s. So anyway, beyond historical records, as you said, there's a world of sources that people way back when use for information when they can't get the documents or can't find anything or are from an oral culture. And by the way, what you said about oral inter oral history and listening to the old people, it's very important for indigenous history and Native Americans as well as the African Americans, although I realize these are parallel tracks. But anyhow, I already mentioned morphology, phenotypes. That one over there looks like me in some way. Uh, oral interviews, like we said. Graystone carvings, 
So through time, genealogists of all races and nationalities use these various non-textual methods where the paper trail ends and um, professional genealogists will tell you and experts will tell you, you then you, you take the info that you've got obtained from your oral uh, interview or your or whatever information you've got from oral, you reconfirm that information in a written source. And I want you to keep in mind all the difficulties of doing that if we're talking about enslaved people or poor communities of free blacks and so forth. Okay, now, uh, DNA testing. To make a long story short, this is a set of businesses that emerges in the years immediately following 1998, right? So it's the turn of the 2000s when you're starting to be able to purchase your home DNA test. And this is, I'm talking about a particular set of businesses that caters to genealogists, right? There are all these other uses of DNA here, um, uh, like paternity testing and things. And the, I see genealogy DNA testing as overlapping, but different, right? So what information do you get from your, your home DNA test once it's gone to the lab and you get the email with the, you know, the, the results? Okay, what do you see in your results? Um, you don't get names or relationships or dates by any means. Um, your DNA is compared with the DNA of unspecified test populations. And for many companies, at least for Ancestry, other clients' DNA. Um, but the, the businesses I've dealt with or read about, and I'm most familiar with Ancestry.com, uh, refuse to describe these internal DNA samples. They don't say how many people we're talking about whose DNA is compared to yours, right? Um, uh, so there's a lot you don't know about the samples. So what you see in your results is percentages of the geographical locations uh, suggested by those matches between your DNA and these um, sort of sample populations with their DNA being collected. So you see geographical locations specifying your genetic roots. And so typically, again, in the ancestry results, and I'm not familiar with how 23andMe might do this, some of the other companies are a lot of different companies, but anyhow, with my ancestry test, um, I first received my results as a pie chart, which I reprinted in my introduction. Um, but uh, in uh, more recent years, you typically you'll see colored blotches on a map of the world. You know, your uh, genetics suggest, uh, sorry, properties of your DNA suggest that uh, part of your ancestry, a certain percentage of your ancestry is from this place. I remind you that my own ancestry test um, uh, uh, said that 91% of my genetic ancestry is from England and Wales, right? That's just me. Okay, so there are no names of people here, right? Um, and uh, it's purely genetic relationships when you get those emails from other clients that have where the DNA has something in common with yours. Now, I'm guessing that when you get those emails from other clients, like I get them from Ancestry occasionally, maybe every few months saying that, um, there, basically, there's an overlap between this person's DNA and yours. You can contact that person if you like. Um, I've never done that. I've never said yes to these emails, but I keep them. 
right? Because I find it interesting. It's a purely genetic relationship if there is one, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. Okay, I'm guessing that people of Western European ethnicity, like myself, I'm white, I'm Anglo-American, the people of Western European ethnicity get these emails more often than non-Europeans do, than African-American uh, African-Americans or indigenous people do, simply because those millions of people who have purchased DNA tests in the past 20 years or so that the industries existed, they skew Western European and they skew white. Simply put, the samples are bigger where the DNA would match. You know what I mean? So considering all these reasons, sort of uncertainties, unreliabilities, why then do we have such publicity, including TV shows, lots of different reality shows about when which African descended people use these kinds of DNA tests and open their results while uh, on camera, right? The first reality show of this kind involved uh, uh, Black people in Britain called Motherland, right? It's specifically on Black British people finding out in many cases about their uh, that part of their ancestry that's white. Sorry, that's uh, anyway. Um, lots to talk about uh, African American. Um, you know, these shows having African American content, right? Uh, so why is there so much publicity, and why do we have, uh, you know, DNA testing of this kind having this particular meaning for African Americans to the point that I can point to a black-owned uh, business of this kind? Well, um, the African American genealogists, as a rule, have had incredible frustrations in using traditional document-based genealogy methods, right? You can point to this also with Jew many Jewish genealogists from Eastern Europe in particular. You can point to this with Native Americans as well. History cuts these a lot of these people off from the archives. It's for reasons of history that you're not going to find anything, let alone if, you know, also if you're encountering this, uh, you know, doing genealogy while Black. So DNA test results, you're doing it in your own home, even with all the problems I just described, they give you some information where there used to be no information, right? Very to this day, it is fiendishly difficult to document in traditional sources back to Africa the way Alex Haley claimed to do with Kunta Kinte. It's really rare and it depends, it, it depends so much on like uh, what I'm, the other status, you know, the class standing of all the generations in between. So, yeah, um, I hope that begins to answer the question. Yeah. And I want to pick up on that last point of um, the traditional ways of, um, you know, f figuring out, tracking one's um, familial um, ties and in, in linkages. Um, in the context of, you know, now with, with, as you write in one of your chapters, genealogy for hire and for profit, right? It seems as though that the way that, uh, that we practice genealogy in America is very much that it's a privilege, right? And it's also connected to the profitability of figuring out one's um, genetic, genetic roots, right? And so I think about your title of your book, um, a nation of descendants. And so if we are indeed a nation of descendants, how should we think about genealogical knowledge as a right? Should we think of it as a right 
even when we want to expand um, how families are constructed, and you talk about this at the end of your book, right? You know, when we consider um, children that are adopted or communities that identify um, themselves as gay, trans, um, queer, should we really begin to like think about um, genealogical knowledge as a right as opposed to the way that it's been governed in many ways um, as a privilege? That is a terrific question. Um, and each, I would say each person has to answer that for themselves. But I'm, what I want to do is place this conviction that you have a right to your, to know about your biogenetic uh, descent, your genetic relatives, right? Um, I want to place this idea of having that right in history. It, knowledge of, again, our, our blood-based family history in particular feels like a right especially in modern times, especially in the last 20 years, but long before that, because there's so much money and commerce and entertainment and emotion and commercialism, you know, pushing us to that conclusion. There is so much reinforcement to think so. And it isn't just about money. It's so powerful in the uh, culture. You think about Afrocentrism in the 90s and so forth. That's so much to say. Okay. So among these, uh, there's a, an, another kind of reinforcement to thinking about a right. And um, I didn't really go into this in the book as much as I wanted to. And there's a lot more to say. Okay. But one thing that's happened in the last few decades is considerable genetic uh, innovations in the field of medicine um, and this newer field of epigenetics, which studies all the environmental impacts on one's genetics, um, genomes getting completed. There, there's all sorts of things to say from a medical standpoint about the implications of genetic findings for health. Uh, you know, my own, I periodically, get, I periodically get solicitations of various kinds from my own doctors asking patients to be part of genetic studies, right? So the, these implications of genetic knowledge for health are considerable, and there are all these ways that um, the scientific and medical findings get understood among lay people, the people who are not scientists or professional, medical professionals. Anyhow, I think all this talk of medicine and health, it's operated on lay people's consciousness. Another thing to make them think, often for good reason, that they must indeed know their biological descent. And it's this very deep social problem that we must do something about when they get cut off uh, in whatever way or it gets uh, hidden. Now, the conviction of having a right, it plays out like a norm, you know, plays out like a cultural norm. Therefore, it helps explain all of those, I'm going to use the word queer, because they do, right? All those LGBTQ plus family alternatives that I talk about. Uh, towards the end of my book. And I use the word queerness here to communicate this real undeniable pride in distinctiveness and the flouting of convention. They, they know it's different when we talk about found family, when we talk about families we choose. Uh, so much to say there. But it would be historically inaccurate to place LGBTQ plus communities outside this history of especially um, medicine and layperson's understanding of, of like medicine and all, and all sorts of things. 
LGBTQ plus people are as divided and varied in their approaches to family as straight and cisgender people are. Um, so anyhow, changes in attitudes towards genetics and genealogy entertainment, sometimes at those reality shows, ads for DNA testing, they operate among people and couples regardless or across the board, whether they belong to different genders, whether they're heterosexual couples or same gender couples or can procreate in the old fashioned way uh, biologically or are using assisted reproduction. You know, there's just variety everywhere. But anyhow, yes, I, I, I like to examine this idea of having a right uh, from the outside and place it in history. And I can sort of sit back and say, well, you know, it's, there's reinforcement here. Um, portrayed as a choice, but I don't know what that is like to be cut off from my own knowledge, right? I got to put myself in someone else's shoes um, who's adopted, for example, and can't get hold of their own birth information. I can see why movements form on the part of adults who have uh, been adopted as babies by um, what I'm up to the closed adoptions being done by strangers. You know, I can see why a movement developed on the part of adult adoptees expressing their indignation. I can see why it feels like a right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love uh, that you said that the, the right um, to history, the right in history. I want to end um, our conversation with you telling us what you're working on now. Oh, yes. Um, I'd love to talk about that. Well, right now I'm working on two articles that are basically spinoffs from the book, A Nation of Descendants. Um, it's, the, these two articles are going to let me go into further depth and on uh, particular matters I didn't have space for in the book if my book was going to stay focused. Uh, so anyhow, uh, right now I'm working on an article on cultural representations of Mayflower descent and pilgrim history since 1945. And just like in my book, I go all the way up to the present. And I don't just talk about people who derived great meaning from those two things. I'm talking about people who detract uh, from this thesis of the Mayflower indicating the future of America. So um, in this article, I go into histories of tourism. I uh, provide a full-on institutional history of a hereditary group called the Society of Mayflower Descendants, which is a national network, and it's international, too. Obviously, we have Mayflower Descendants in Canada. Um, I lay out uh, the racial uh, uh, reading of the Mayflower Descendant pilgrims, and I lay out also by the, you know, after 1945, we have a distinctively non-racial liberal reading of Mayflower descent as uh, presuming that all Americans have sort of spiritual descent from pilgrims based on conviction rather than blood. And um, at the end of the article, again, I do a lot with detractors, people who, who for various reasons are kind of want to substitute other origin dates and uh, meanings for early colonial histories implications for the future United States. I end with a history of the 1619 project and all of its uh, uh, detractors, right? So like I say, go all the way up to the present. Um, now I have almost a full draft of this article. Um, I have to cut it before I send it anywhere. It's, it's big, it's a long article. The second article is mostly a gleam in mama's eye. I must say that second article is going to be a sustained history and analysis of history and genealogy as fields. 
and all the reasons why I think relations have thawed and there's been some degree of coming together starting in the 1990s for good and for ill. So once again, I go up to the present. I've discussed recent decades. This article is going to be based mostly on historiographical research and schools of thought. Um, I have no idea what my next book project is going to be, but I think that to do good articles is going to take me a few years. So yes, indeed, that's what I'm doing now. These are wonderful um, additions to the fantastic um, and well-researched book that you gave to us and to the world. So definitely looking forward to both the um, those articles, the Pilgrim History and the um, the the field of genealogy and history, as as um, as you say, fields. This is just fantastic. So Francesca Morgan is an assistant. Associate Professor of History at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. Her latest book is titled A Nation of Descendants, Politics and the Practice of Genealogy in U.S. History. It is out now with the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much, Francesca, for this great, informative conversation. Thank you for me, Nikazi. It's been a pleasure.